On this week's Behind the Idea, we talk about chapters 3 and 4 of Joel Greenblatt's You Can Be a Stock Market Genius. These are the chapters you remember if you've read this book. Risk arbitrage, merger securities, rights offerings, but most of all, spinoffs. We break down our favorite case study from the book, assess whether spinoffs and these other strategies still make sense 22 years later, and of course, we share our favorite lines and jokes. Have a listen on this week's Behind the Idea. Welcome to Behind the Idea. I'm Daniel Schwartzman. And I'm Mike Taylor. This is part two of our special series breaking down one of our favorite books, Joel Greenblatt's You Can Be a Stock Market Genius. Last time we talked about the first two chapters, which lay out the blueprint for Greenblatt's investing mindset, the advantage individual investors have, and the need to look in hidden places of the market for ideas. This time we're getting to chapters three and four where Greenblatt gives examples of the hidden places he likes to look. Spinoffs, write offerings, merger arb. This is what people remember when they talk about this book. The big question is, are these places still hidden, or has the territory been picked over by all the stock market geniuses out there? We'll discuss that, as well as our favorite quotes and Greenblattisms on this week's Behind the Idea. Before we begin, Behind the Idea is a podcast that breaks down what makes great investment analysis work using articles and ideas from the Seeking Alpha ecosystem and books by Joel Greenblatt. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice. We might discuss stocks in this episode, and if we do discuss any stocks we own positions in, we will disclose them at the end of the podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by Seeking Alpha Pro Plus. Try Pro Plus for 30 days free at seekingalpha.com slash proplus. And real quick, listeners, listen up. I have to tell you, I have to discuss this. I have to bring up the topic of podcast ratings. My request is simple. Please rate us. We know you are out there and we know that you're growing in number, a teeming horde of behind the idea listeners eager for investment analysis and ideas and the breakdowns thereof. Please support our efforts and help us get better with a rating on Apple Podcasts. And if you are truly inspired, please put finger to keyboard or phone touchscreen or tablet, I guess, tablet heads out there, shout out, and leave us a review. We appreciate you all from the bottom of our hearts. Thank you for joining us along this investment analysis path, and thank you so much for your support. Okay, Daniel, chapters three and four, the special situations Bible. What are we doing here? Well, let's start with chapter three. Chapter three is primarily about spinoffs. He also covers partial spinoffs and rights offerings as part of this sort of spinoff we're not going to go too in-depth into the rights offering example. We're going to pick our favorite example to discuss. It's one of the cleaner examples in here. But also, let's get into some of the high-level stuff. As I said on the top, I think when people think of Joel Greenblatt, they think of spinoffs. They think basically of this chapter. And I think it's interesting to first look at what the case is. And I think then zooming out, does this still apply to the markets today? Because I think that's a strategy that appeals to both of us, but it's a strategy that appeals to a lot of people to the point where 
it may not appeal as much anymore. So the Greenblatt addressed this, by the way, up front, arguing that comp- this will still outperform even when people know about this strategy. And he's quite confident about that. And his, his argument is basically that there are a bunch of dynamics related to spinoffs that just fundamentally lead to di- mispricings that shouldn't happen. There is the fact that when a company is spun off, which means that a unit of a business is spun to public investors without going through an IPO process, without going through any other sales process, it means that the investors who finally received them invested in a bigger company X, and now we're getting this random segment Y, which you know they owned as part of X, but is usually not core to what X does. And so it's not really of interest to those investors. They're not the right audience for that. They sign up for the dividend yield from X, and now you've got Y, which is a growth company. Or they signed up for the exciting, as one example, the exciting hotel management business and don't actually want to own the hotels, even though in that case, it was the reverse. I think they spun off the hotel management business. But let's maybe just like a quick hypothetical is like Google owns YouTube. Those are connected companies, but they arguably could operate separately. Google could spin YouTube off to Google shareholders as a separate uh, company trading under the hypothetical ticker symbol YTBE. All Google shareholders would have to do is sit there holding their Google stock. When the spinoff consummates, they would now have GOOG or G-O-O-G-L, as well as hypothetical Y-T-B-E. That would be an example of a spinoff with a sort of company that everyone knows. So that's a clean example. Yeah, I think that's a good example. And I think it illustrates the dynamics at work here. And I think Google and YouTube, to some degree, wouldn't quite get this, but you because they're, they would still both be large caps. But if you think about the size there, I think that also gets to another key thing because Google would still be, and I should mention I'm long Google and I'll mention that at the end as well. But the size dynamic here is something like you would imagine that the parent Google would still be seven times YouTube or something like that. And that happens a lot. That's another reason that institutional investors especially can't hold positions here because they they have a mandate. They have guidelines to their fund. They might be mirroring an index if an S&P yeah. 500 spins off whatever and so that's a major size yeah. mismatch let's go down the list so you have a you have a good list here of the reasons that spinoffs work so one example is spinoffs are spun to investors who don't want shares this is not usually true for google right like google shareholders often view youtube as attractive but say youtube was a struggling uh video business uh, that wasn't the most dominant video platform and one of the biggest search engines in its own right on the internet. Say it was not something that people viewed as really the same as Google, then if they spun off YouTube, investors wouldn't want the shares. Daniel mentioned the size mismatch. Say Google was smaller and YouTube was only a $50 million company instead of however many billions it actually is some mutual fund holders wouldn't be able to hold the company because they have certain size mandates that restrict them against holding microcap stocks. 
What else, Daniel? There's also, so the business quality was, Greenblatt broke this out clear in his first example, which we won't go into depth, which I alluded to, which was Marriott and host hotels, I think. They, they signed up for a nice business and then they get stuck with the business that's considered the bad business, which happens a lot. I think that's another reason that spinoffs. So there's, so, and these sort of fall into a couple of carries. They fall into companies trade off when they shouldn't. And then there's actually fundamental good things here. So, so far we've mentioned the bad things. The good things I think are that he points out that the research at the time showed that the second year is when a spinoff really tends to outperform, which I think is interesting as we sort of spot check how this works now. But also the idea is I, you spin off a company and all of a sudden, if they're a small unit in a big company, for example, and their stock options are tied to the performance of the big company, their small unit doesn't really move the needle that much. And it's not, it's just, you don't get as creative, you don't get as risk-taking, you don't get as enterprising in how you run the business. Whereas if you spin off, if the insider incentives are aligned, and he cites examples of if, for example, the CEO moves to the spinoff or stays with the worst company, that is a important indicator of what's going on. If stock options are allocated to the new management team, other ways to align with shareholder value. I think that's, as he puts it, capitalism for all its flaws or all its challenges does work was his argument. And that's where you sort of align those incentives. And then the last thing that I think is really interesting, and I find myself falling into spinoffs that hopefully we'll exemplify this, even though I don't like leverage, is that he points out that leverage really can play out nicely for you, uh, where if a company has um, is often loaded up with a lot of debt, and we might go into examples, but without alluding to the spun names, Honeywell is well known for, or to us well known for, spinning off a company making the company pay them a dividend, which forces that company to you know put debt on their balance sheet. And they increasingly spin off liabilities too. And in theory, that loads that with something of a toxic balance sheet. But if the, all the other stuff works out, then all of a sudden the leverage, you don't need a lot to go right for that to really take off. So I think that's the, the that's essentially the playbook for why this all works. Uh, to agree. Lastly, I guess that companies don't, uh, that investors often don't go deep into this. They, they, you know, in the ignore them. They they think this looks bad and they stay away or whatever else. So that's the last thing. Honeywell, guys, come on with the the legal liabilities and the the debt for the dividend. It's just gratuitous at this point. When you spend something off, just give it a nice clean balance sheet for me and Daniel. That's all we ask. Honeywell, come on. Oh, it's true. It's true. You sympathize with that, Daniel. Empathize, sympathize. Lots of pathos around that. So that's the affirmative case. And the contra case, I think, is something, uh, an article, recent article by Seeking Alpha author and frequent Pro Plus author, Ian Bezek, talks about how spinoffs are their Greenblatt says that this is going to be sort of an eternal market dynamic, and it's attractive sort of throughout the ages. And he said this in 99. It's 20 years later. We had a recent article 
Ian sort of talks about some of the ways in which spinoffs may no longer be attractive, including that there's now an ETF aimed at targeting spinoffs. The strategy has gotten popular, Ian says, and just in general, this may no longer work as a strategy. And I think one of the counters to that is that Greenblatt sort of steps aside from a lot of the systematic strategy-based investing. And one of the great things about the case studies in chapter three is that he really emphasizes that you're playing a bit of a game and you're trying to figure out where management incentives are and that that's one of the key drivers of investor success with spinoffs. And that's sort of separate from just passively creating or creating a vehicle that just systematically invests in spinoffs. And so I think there's a little bit different strategy versus just the intrinsic opportunity to invest in, in spinoffs. Greenblatt says that no matter what, spinoffs are attractive, but then his playbook is really designed at sort of making sure that you as an investor are critically evaluating the situation and looking at the incentive systems and playing a game with other investors. And I think that sort of brings you into a different opportunity set. It's not that doesn't makes it so that you don't necessarily have to have spinoffs always work out well for you to be successful using this strategy. Well, it's interesting because again, I, I don't know if we talked about this in the first episode, I can't remember, but his baseline is market performance is 10%. Spinoffs outperform by 10%. And then if you pick the best spinoffs, you do even better. So I know that stock, we've had some decent returns this decade, but still 10% as a baseline for forward looking returns just sounds uh, not conservative. That's my hurdle rate. Yeah, that's my aggressive <laughs> hurdle. There I almost never find opportunities that hit that. Yeah. But I, I talked a little bit uh, in the last episode about uh, how. I was like, oh, I think that value's dead, that quant strategies are sarging out a lot of these opportunities on the long side. Just forget about it. But this episode really brought me back home. And I think one of the reasons is that these case studies are just so sort of attractive. The last thing before we get into the example is I would just say to Ian's point, first of all, you know, in the comments, there was, you know, discussion of, the spinoff has changed, the ETF has changed its benchmark. And so, you know, as always, as Greenblatt said in the first couple of chapters, do your own homework. But I think the what's interesting to me is the point, I, Greenblatt, I think, was saying, even if investors are looking there, there's still going to be dislocations, there's still opportunities. I think it's interesting tactically to think about whether you're, you should buy a spinoff before it spins or whether you should buy it after, whether you should, you know, as he said, the second year is the outperformance, like how to think through that. I think, though, the two things that are interesting to me are, number one, Ian makes the point that companies kind of know this. And so you have that behavioral loop of companies know that spinoffs are going to be received well. And so they have more license to load it up with debt or they have more license to spin off units that they couldn't sell or whatever else. Like it all of a sudden becomes this, this. It's a genuine trash heap. It really is. If companies know that investors are going to bag hold for it. 
Exactly. And that's, you know, and I've got him burnt. So, you know, and stuff happens too that ends up knocking out spinoffs the same as everything else. But um, so that's one. And the number two is I think the, the point we get, we were saying 10%, then you add 10%. And then if you do better, you get better. But also it's interesting to think about it's easy. And I know I don't always look at the incentives, the insider incentives to see where the management goes or are they aligning the new management if it's a smaller segment or whatever else. Like it's very easy to apply part of this analysis and not every part of this analysis. And that's where, you know, at the end of the book, we'll get to that in a later episode. Greenblatt talks about, am I like your buddy cop who makes it out, but then gets you killed. And (laughs) like, you still have to do your own work. You still have to be able to, it's very easy to get motivated by this and go out and pull up the, you know, I have a bookmark of all the 10, 12 B filings on Edgar, which I think captures most spinoffs. And then there aren't a ton out there as far as I can tell, but it's easy to get inspired, but you still have to like, it's still an investment. You have to make the smart bet here. You have to understand what could go wrong. Do all these things line up and it's easy and not to blame Greenblatt, but it's just whether or not this, this strategy has played out. It's also the onus is on the investor to really, check all the boxes and make sure that this makes sense, that they understand. And I think he'll talk, he has a quote about that at some point in these chapters about the need to understand what you're doing. And so I think that's really, really relevant as we go into some of these examples. Yeah, we, we so we wanted to do Stratech. We thought that that was the best example to go into. So why is that? Okay. Stratech is my favorite. I'm, Example. This was the case study in You Can Be a Stock Market Genius that inspired me to try this, that inspired me to look for spinoff filings, that inspired me to try to do individual company analysis. And I basically applied this Stratech example to several analyses I've done of other spinoffs that have happened lately. So I think what listeners can take away from that is that I found this to be personally sort of the most compelling case study in the entire book. Yeah. What stands out for you? What's, what do you like about this example? What inspired you? What, what can listeners take away from it today? So superficially, and this is not really one of the reasons, but Briggs and Stratton is a Milwaukee company and I grew up in Milwaukee. That's my hometown. So I just had a little bit of home bias resonance there with it. And it's a big employer in Milwaukee. It's an important company uh, in the region. But one of the reasons, and some of this is obvious in hindsight and probably colors my opinion now, but it's sort of the cleanest possible spinoff example. It's like if you were to have a spinoff textbook, which this more or less is, and you were to create a hypothetical example, it would probably look a lot like Stratech, Briggs, and Stratton. Here's the situation. Stratech is the spinoff company of Briggs and Stratton, which is the larger company. It represented a very small portion of Briggs and Stratton earnings, 10%. Briggs and Stratton was about a billion dollar company at the time, putting Stratech in this great sweet spot of the $100 million market cap range, which is below the threshold where a lot of institutional investors can consider the company. 
as I said before, one of the key elements here and one of the things that Greenblatt does well is kind of play a game with the stock market and play a game with management. And something that sort of turned a light on for me with Stratech and Briggs and Stratton is he just looked up valuation multiples in value line and saw, okay, companies like this can trade for PE between nine and 13. And that was huge for me thinking in valuation ranges. What's the bottom of the valuation range and what's the top of the valuation range? And I think a lot of times investors, especially on Seeking Alpha, are kind of dogmatic. They come up with a valuation and then they get sort of stuck to it. They're like, this is a $500 million company. And if the market's not pricing it there, then the market's wrong and I'm right. And Greenblatt's a little bit more sort of flexible in his thinking. He's like, the market could put this at 9 PE or it could put it at 13 PE. And I'm not going to get upset if it's anywhere else, but that's where I'm sort of thinking about the valuation range. And I think that's a really productive valuation tactic that not enough people apply. It's just like the market could go crazy and sell this thing down too far. It could go crazy and sell it too high. Greenblatt's really good on that. Another thing that's great about Stratech is that it is an industrial company. It makes locks for the automotive sector. It makes car locks, basically. And what's great about that is that's a widget factory. That's It's a Milwaukee industrial. They have a plant sitting in the middle of the Midwest, and they make widgets. You know who the customers are. Everything about this is sort of intuitive. Uh, they have some strategic advantage, but basically they're just making doohickeys. And what's cool about that is not only is that intuitively understandable, but gap accounting was created to create an accurate picture of this type of company. You've got a factory, a fixed asset. It produces stuff. You sell it to customers and generate your revenue. You incur costs and then you have profits. So I love analyzing companies like this because there's very little sort of fuzziness around it. You can, it's a, it's an area where the gap numbers are just much more likely without significant adjustment to reflect reality. That's why I think Greenblatt's comfortable using a PE ratio here. You're just looking at gap net income and you're looking at market cap. And that's where I came up with my 10 PE. I slap a 10 PE on something, take the net income, 10 times that gives you a stock price. Earnings per share times 10. That's where you should start looking. And uh, Greenblatt did that for me. It's resulted in me not investing in very many individual opportunities, but it's inspiring to me. What did you think about this case study, Daniel? To me, this is really paradigmatic and it's something that I still use today. Well, I think this is the dream of fundamental analysis and of what value in special situation investors do for part of the reasons you said, but then also the what Greenblatt does is he looks at this company, he says, "All right, great, we've got we've got a, the setup looks good. They they're a small part of the larger company. They look to be we can figure out what their EPS is, which comes in the later filings. You." figure out what the ratio is going to be of the spinoff. And then you can start to, to translate that into an actual market cap and estimate a price. You don't know where the stock's going to trade when it first spins. 
But then further he goes in and he says, let's look at their business. 50% of their business comes from GM. They're the largest supplier of locks to GM. They also provide almost all of Chrysler's locks, 16% of their business. First of all, I just, that kind of gives you a nice sizing of Chrysler <laughs> GM at the time, which is yeah. interesting. But then GM also a, uh, Ads encountered some issues later on in life. <laughs> well, the car industry is as all. And by the way, Greenblatt does call out auto parts, which, again, if we want to get into current examples of spinoffs that may not be working as well, car parts, auto parts industry, not a great business. And he says that. But he makes the point from this, I guess, that Stratech must be pretty good at making car locks. Pretty simple inference. He probably did more work on this at the time, but yeah, you, you, you can, you suspect that it's not a super attractive business to get into, but that they're pretty good if they can be Chrysler's supplier, GM's main supplier. And then on top of that, what he does is he spots that in the filings, they say this was in 1994. He said, they say, as of 1996, we expect Ford to be our number two customer, which means that they will either means that their business to Chrysler is going to decrease. And I think they didn't warn that that was going to happen or that Ford is going. To, and I think they said that we don't actually sell to Ford, but we anticipate becoming them becoming our number two business, which means 16% revenue growth at a minimum. And so that's something that is easy to miss because, again, we've already heard that this is a small part of Briggs & Stratton. We already know that the auto parts industry is not one that's exactly sexy or going to attract a lot of buyers. And so now you have this really attractive opportunity because you know you can, you're likely to get a good chance to get in at a reasonable PE as is, and then you have growth on top of it. So it's not just a dog in the sense of there is, it's cheap for a reason. And so that's what essentially happens. And then, you know, it plays out pretty well for Greenblatt, right? I mean, it, it works. Yeah. <laughs> he talks about yeah. it spins off at about $10 a share. And I forget how long it took, but he had sort of said 11.8 per share would be a good price, which would be 10 times earnings. So let's see where the... It was traded freely. This, you know, another dated thing was that he says it traded freely between 10 and a half and 12, going back to when stocks traded eighths. Yeah. At, in eighths. But it ended up trading up to $18 before the end of 1995, 50% plus gain in less than eight months. So, yeah. you know, and so this stuff, that's just an example. And I think this is implicit in this. Again, we talked about market efficiency last time. I don't. I didn't pull up what happened to Stratech, but you know, a fifty percent move in eight months, it could have gone back down. And w some of the spinoffs we talk about, like they do go down eventually, and that's fine. Like if you're if you know what you're getting into, and that's where I think implicit here is that this is not a buy and hold strategy for yeah. a lot of these companies, and so you just you play for your advantage, and then you move on. And so, I mean, this is just. It's obviously we're cherry picking because it's already a cherry picked set of investments by Greenblatt and then we're picking our favorite, but this is just how the game is meant to work. Yeah. Yeah. So I love this. I've applied it 
I had a brief position in Advanced Six that I've talked about a couple times on the <laughs> podcast. Worked well. I got it booked a you know quick gain of around forty percent in something like three or four months, and I sold. Turns out I sold too early because the stock actually tripled from from where I bought it. But that's one of the important things that Greenblatt says is if you don't like the business, you should probably sell when it hits fair value. And uh, that was what I was doing there. I just go back. Greenblatt closes the section by saying, okay, I know you're thinking the money's all fine and good, but auto parts, sheesh, they're so darn boring. For me, that's actually a benefit. I love when there are spinoffs that are sort of straight out of the econ or accounting textbook. I love that the Ford thing, it reads like a microeconomics story problem where you're the head of some business and then a new customer comes in. I feel like that's like a classic thing that an econ teacher would do. Now you have a new customer, Ford, and they're here to buy. And what does that, how does that impact your business? Give me these boring companies. I'm all about the boring companies. So. Uh, yeah, he concludes this chapter with 10 commandments that are actually seven commandments. And I think this is the worst Greenblatt joke that he has in the book. He throws in like three junk commandments, but his basic takeaways are spinoffs beat the market. We think that that's somewhat controversial today, although there is a case and there's fundamental reasons for it. Pick your spots. I think if you're going to take this strategy, that that's a critical element and he does a good job of emphasizing it. Although I think one thing, if you were to update this book, you might have to sort of hammer home, pick your spots a little bit more since we have at least Daniel and I, some salient examples of spinoffs not working out too well, according to this playbook. Great spinoffs are unwanted by institutions, wanted by insiders and have a hidden asset. Again, he's that's one single commandment. That should really be three commandments. Read the filings directly. Pay attention to what the parent companies are doing. Partial spinoffs create opportunities. Keep an eye on insiders, which you already mentioned before. And then the last three are Gilli a Gilligan's Island joke. Uh, stealing can be a good thing. And then finally, call back to Lutas is as fine as don't ask stupid questions at Lutas. Any, so any last thoughts on this, this subject on chapter three? Anything else you want to make sure we hit or... Should we move on to chapter four? I just want to emphasize first, just this is the chapter. This is the money chapter for Greenblatt, I think, in both Daniel's and my estimation. If you only read one chapter, this should probably be the chapter. It's great. And it's great not just because it outlines the spinoff strategy, but also it gives you a framework if you're interested in value investing for how to start looking at companies and how to start looking at market pricing. And I think thinking in terms of ranges is my key takeaway from the chapter. A PE from 9 to 13, don't get anchored on one single point estimate. Think about the market and what it, opportunities it might give you and think about the low end of a valuation range versus the high end of a reasonable valuation range and make decisions based on that. That for me is the key takeaway. And before we get into chapter two, I also have one other key takeaway, and it has to do with uh, Seeking Alpha sponsoring this podcast, uh, specifically Seeking Alpha Pro Plus. 
So a quick word for listeners before we get to chapter four. Pro Plus lets you filter all of Seeking Alpha's investing styles and opportunities. So if you wake up one morning and you say, you know, I'm feeling a little greenbladdish today. I think maybe a 10, 12B kind of what I have an appetite for. Maybe a little spinoff. Maybe look for something like a, uh, a Stratech or a, uh, a Lehman Brothers. <laughs> Probably don't look for Probably a Lehman not Brothers. Lehman Brothers. <laughs> but anyway, if you wake up and you're like, I feel a little bit like Joel Greenblatt today. I'm a little bit of feeling like I'm a Mets, Jets, Knicks fan, a little value investee. <laughs> look, here's what you can do. You can use the Pro Plus Idea Filter, a piece of software that helps you look for articles on Seeking Alpha that use a special situation style. And if you want to get even more deep in the weeds, you can look for specific opportunities with the idea filter. We have a spin-off mode. Spin-off mode. You can enter spin-off mode using Seeking Alpha Pro Plus. That's amazing. And when we get to chapter four, we'll talk about Greenblatt's ideas about merger arbitrage. He does not like merger arbitrage. Well, maybe you wake up one morning and you're saying, you know what, Greenblatt? I'm not feeling you today. I'm going to go after some merger arb, arb opportunities. Well, guess what? The idea filter has you covered there. We have a merger arb category. You can look at Seeking Alpha authors' ideas about merger arb. So even if you don't like Greenblatt, there's still something for you, Seeking Alpha Pro Plus. Pro Plus has you covered for any number of investment styles. To sign up for a free trial, go to seekingalpha.com slash proplus. That's seekingalpha.com slash P-R-O-P-L-U-S. Pro Plus, you like Greenblatt, you don't, there's still something for you there. They bring you this podcast and they bring you so much more. So check them out. All right, Daniel, I think now we're ready. Chapter four. Chapter four. So chapter four is really interesting to me because it, it basically covers mergers as sort of a catalyst for corporate actions and for opportunities. But it was surprising to me when I read this five years ago or so, having been familiar with special situations with what we published on Seeking Alpha, it was surprising to me to find out that Greenblatt is quite against merger ARB. He's into merger securities, and we'll get to that next, but he was against merger arbitrage. And it's interesting to me for to think about, I, I've actually found for myself that merger arbitrage is not a good fit because... I don't really have an edge except I guess behavioral, but even behavioral is not a great edge for me because, because of seeking alpha's policies around you need to have positions for 90 days or we we're allowed to ask for a waiver, but I don't like to do that. And so it's just, you know, I, I, I remember I invested in Hutchinson, which actually worked in the end. And if you had just picked it and then ignored it in the end, you would have made a nice return, but it like I think I got into it. The deal price was at four. I got into it somewhere maybe three point four, and it got up to three point six. I was like, if I were more nimble, I would have just closed it then and moved on and be like, oh great, and I'll annualize it and it'll look like a great rare turn. But it, I love doing that. By the way, annualizing <laughs> short term returns, just extrapolate it out there. <laughs> Why not? You book a ten percent gain in two weeks. Heck, just annualize that. Here, I'll do it right now. Give me one second. 1.1 to the 
We'll call it 25th. Right, sure. 10x. Wow. Big return. Wow. That's amazing. You just need to find something to immediately put it into and then it just needs scalable opportunities to line up for you every 10 weeks and they need to systematically without variation deliver 10% returns. All you out there annualizing your short-term returns. We see you. We don't like it. Returns are subject to variance. And the implicit assumption there is that your, your style replicates on a systematic basis over and over again with regularity. Come on now. Don't annualize short-term expected returns. It's a suspect. Suspect it is, method. I would say it's suspect. I think that's I think you want to I like annualizing long-term returns, but short-term over a year because then you can get the level set for all the different opportunities. But in any case, I, that opportunity it then sold off to about 2 bucks share and you know, I think I had it in I managed my sister's account. Anyway, I so I sold just to get rid of the headache. And in the end, the deal worked. And so it's an example of, for me, the merger arb isn't a good fit, but I found it interesting for Greenblatt. It's not. And by the way, I came to this realization after I read this book. I, you know, so I could have learned earlier from somebody else and didn't. But I think his points are interesting and fair to consider. Too many people are going there. And so, you know, you're competing against, and there isn't, there isn't a the the alignment here isn't such that you can sort of gain an edge in most cases. So there's too many people going there. Spreads are not generally that attractive, especially he's talking about this again in the '90s. Lower interest rates makes risk arbitrage look more attractive on paper, but it's really less attractive for risk adjusted returns. Which his point is that uh, he he was talking about. I, I think I extrapolated that from what he said, but. He's talking about in the 90s, interest rates are in the fives, let's say. And so that puts pressure on deal spreads because people are kind of going to, you sort of, the the mindset is, for example, if I hold 25% of my portfolio in cash and then I see this merger ARB, I say, oh, great, I can earn, you know, a quick, essentially equivalent to some interest on my money at low risk, what seems like low risk. But, you know, nowadays, the everybody's doing that, so that pushes press puts pressure on the spreads, which makes the whole process even less attractive. And then the the last thing that I think is interesting is then Greenblatt walks through a couple of examples horror stories for him that actually didn't work out all that poorly in the end, even though it's fa- fascinating. I'll go into one just quickly in a second, but I wonder. Greenblatt points out, you know, at some point he says you're risking. You're hoping to gain $2 up, but you're risking 14 down. And I think mergers, because if a deal breaks, you go back to where the stock was trading before. Mergers are, are usually done at a premium, et cetera. I wonder if this is probabilistic or if this is just Greenblatt upset because of the bad experiences. One of the bad experiences involved Bush Gardens and a sinkhole opening up in Florida, which is just fascinating example of what could sinkhole go Sinkhole risk. Sinkhole risk. <laughs> well, and that's what he said. He said that's not in the proxy. I didn't see any risk of sinkholes. I wasn't ready for this. And, you know, Greenblatt <laughs> is from New York or from New Jersey or wherever that area, and he's a city guy. Made of rocks out there. I think Manhattan's just a giant rock. There aren't any sinkholes in Manhattan. Well, who knows? They have a subway anyway. But so that's <laughs> like for you know, and that's that's the the New York 
bias that I think sometimes pervades in the market, but you're not thinking about Florida and a sinkhole opening up. And so, I don't know, what did you make of the case against risk arbitrage? Did you, do you, do you think this is just Greenblatt like expressing his own experiences or do you think there's something more universal here? Uh, be honest with you, I don't have like a super strong opinion about risk arb. It's not interesting to me as a strategy, but I think that's more dispositional than anything else. Smart people do it. And I think that that's made like AQR, I think has a risk arb fund and, you know, Cliff Asnes, one of the biggest hedge funds in the world also offers mutual funds, a very systematic and statistical thinker. <laughs> they run, or at least used to run a, a merger arm strategy. I think that that's a point against home gamers trying it. AQR is sophisticated and systematic and smart. They run this at with a lot of money behind the strategy, meaning that they are going to be an active participant in compressing the spreads I kind of do buy the Greenblatt argument that this is sort of a $2 upside, $14 downside. I think, you know, the in my observation, when a deal is announced, then the target company will shoot up in price and it will go towards the acquisition price. I think M&A deals do tend to happen at a premium to the market pricing and probably estimations of intrinsic value, especially popular and well-known mergers. That means that there's probably some downside in there. There's some fluff in the price action and your upside is capped. So I kind of buy that. I haven't looked at it rigorously. Clearly, some people have looked at it rigorously and find an opportunity there. I think that Greenblatt is doing a good job of showing that you need to know yourself and your strategy and he's decided that this isn't for him. And I think that that's a key takeaway for anybody reading the book, especially if this is aimed at sort of a more sophisticated retail investor audience. He never says this about spinoffs, but probably if you asked him, you would say, look, if you get burned by spinoffs and it's not working for you and your stomach churns every time you think about them, then don't run the strategy. And I think that's just kind of, that would be my takeaway more than whether merger arb works or not is if it doesn't work for you walk away from it yeah i think that's right and i think i think there's there's that and then there is i think it fits into his mindset of you need to go where other people aren't looking to have an edge which again raises questions of where we are with that with spinoffs but for merger arb it seems fair to say that to really gain an edge and to do this more than as a, at the systematic level is tough for the individual investor and he's also, it, it's a nice, even though I get, I, I mentioned Annie Duke's book last time, and I was thinking about the talks about fielding things into risk versus, or skill versus luck. It's questionable whether he, I think he's ultimately saying, I can't express my skill well in this bucket based on these experiences. So I'm moving on. You can, you can decide whether that's sour grapes or not. But to your point, if it doesn't work for you, it doesn't work for you. I think that's important. I've found the same for merger ARBs. I don't know, remember what my track record was in playing them, but it wasn't super high. Uh, and you ha- kind of have to be super high track record because when you miss it, you miss big. So that leads to merger securities, which 
I think we'll go into an example quickly, but I think this fits in with the with that mindset and the idea of people aren't looking for merger securities. I don't think they're quite as exotic as they used to be because he talks about the big examples. You have some warrants involved. You have some subordinated debentures. You have contingent value rights. And I don't think we usually get this wide an array of securities. You'll see a CVR every now and then, the contingent value, right? And you don't see, like he talks in one example about preferred stock with $2 of face value. And like, I haven't, I don't pay attention to every deal that comes across the wire or anything, but you don't usually read about that. It's usually a mix of cash and and stock. And that's pretty much it. But I think that's interesting. Well, I wonder, I mean, maybe that's exactly the case here is that the ones that he found, you know, I don't think we need to get too deep into Paramount Viacom, which is kind of one of the case studies, but the Wall Street Journal mentioned, but not did not go into any details about the merger securities related to the deal. And I wonder if us not seeing these things is not is I don't know if that's evidence that they're not happening. You know, we may just that may be a consequence of at least me not following merger deals. And, you know, Seeking Alpha doesn't really have a lot of authors that are focused on merger arbor, merger securities at the moment. And so, and maybe there just aren't that many deals happening right now. So it's not like a great time to go hunting for this, just to sort of throw a counter at you. Sure. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think the... The M&A, you know, part of this is cyclical. Usually the M&A is pro-cyclical, right? And so it usually signals the top when there's a lot of M&A. But again, I think we've made that argument, the market has made that argument two or three different times in the last few few years. And it keeps, like the market keeps going. And we've had big deals this year. Uh, I think- I've also actually heard- the argument that it's countercyclical, that after a crash, there's a lot of mergers and private ex- equity transactions as value investors come and they just take out companies that have reached really low valuations. I think it's probably both. You know, you think of the AOL time order, like the biggest mergers in history are like the bell that rings at the top. But a lot of MA activity may actually be a signal of a market. Uh, rebound. I don't know. I'm just I'm just putting out there that I've heard it on both sides. Well, I think also what's interesting, what's fun about this book is you get some larger than life personalities. Not that Greenblatt is going into them so much, but John Malone comes up in chapter three, and he's got the rights offering and all the weird stuff that he does at an earlier stage of the Liberty Media Empire. And John Malone is, you know, I think is is the more sophisticated investors version of the greatest of all time. I think a lot of people like to point to him and all the stuff that he's done building his empire. And he still does. And another name that comes to mind. So Barry Diller comes up in the example in this chapter that we wanted to touch on, which was Paramount and Viacom. And Barry Diller is a, you know, another media industry smart guy. Great character. I feel like, He's not in the spotlight as much now, even though he's doing or has done interesting things in media, social media, had roles in Match.com and Tinder. 
or at least was involved in some of those companies. I feel like he's not getting his due. He's kind of out of the spotlight, and I don't think that's fair because he's kind of this amazing character. He was like a frequent character in the New York Observer, which was this kind of soap operatic chronicler of the 90s. I worked there briefly in the late aughts when it was sort of in a different format, but he's this larger-than-life person, this interesting track record, and he's out of the... Where's... Where are you, Barry Diller? Come back into the spotlight. There's a very good, for people interested in Barry Diller, there is a very good interview with him on Masters of Scale, the podcast that Reed Hoffman of LinkedIn uh, hosts. I, I enjoyed, I learned a lot from that, just as from the business perspective. Yeah, so just as soon as you get through the entire Behind the Idea catalog, that can be the first thing on your list. You only, you're only around 80-some episodes away from hearing that conversation. But I think the the merger security stuff, and again, the spinoffs and the whole mindset of Greenblatt, it, it will, there will still be sorts of opportunities, but they'll look different. And what I'm, what's on my mind today is somebody that we talked about a few weeks ago, Michael Dell and, and Dell Technologies. And that stock is down, as we record this on Friday, August 23rd, is down quite a bit today because... VMware, which Dell sort of owns or owns 80% of, just announced they were buying Pivotal, which was a company that they spun out from the, the EMC empire, and now they're buying back. And they also bought another company. And in the Pivotal case, it's a cash and stock deal. And Dell strikes me as somebody who in this day, whether or not it'll play out well, Thomas Watt made the argument a cup of on our podcast that it will, but you know, the stock is down since then. And that's just an interesting case to me of there's a lot going on and trying to trace the insider incentives and trying to figure out what's going on at the business level will in theory should lead to some interesting opportunities. I personally know positions in any of those stocks, but I'm interested in spending some time when I get the chance at trying to pick apart what's going on here. What's the opportunity, you know, what is the best way to enter into it if there is an opportunity, et cetera. And I just think that's an interesting example of this stuff does play out. It may not play out in the same way, but it, you know, it's the sort of history rhymes, even if it doesn't repeat. And that's where, because, you know, Paramount and Viacom, the example here, we're talking about a deal that those were still relatively big companies at the time. I, you know, in the Paramount movie studios still exist. Viacom is going through another merger story and it's got a lot of boardroom drama with CBS and with summer rent. Let's talk about a soap opera. Good grief. So, but not in a good way. So, and I don't know all the details there, but we're talking about warrants, which give you a chance to own the company later on. And gives you sort of a chip chip in a chair, as they would put it, in the poker industry. There's just a lot going on here. And Greenblatt essentially, I don't think we have the time to break every detail of it. But it's when you're talking about what you have here is you have what on the headlines, you know, if you're reading in the journal, if you're reading even on Seeking Alpha, headlines will have a lot of that drama. But it won't talk about all the details. And, you know, I imagine if Seeking Alpha was around at the time, you would have articles talking about, hey, by the way, there's there's opportunities here and there's close reads 
if you look at everything that's going on. And I think that, I think that's maybe the, that what's interesting about Greenblatt as we go into it is seeking alpha is in part spawned out of investors like him value investors club, which I consider one of our rival sites, a site I like quite a bit is literally spawned out of Joel Greenblatt. I don't know if he founded it, but he's involved there. And I think that's part of it is that, is that people pick apart these a lot more or at the very least the internet brings that to the fore more where you and I can sit at home as home gamers who aren't super investors, aren't super great at finding these opportunities, but now we can go to Seeking Alpha, we can use an idea filter or whatever else. Yes. And we can find 30 day free trial pro plus. (laughs) We can find those ideas at the same time. That means that those ideas are getting picked over. And so as with merger ARBs, the equivalent to the spreads are narrower, but also it means that if you don't apply it right, you get stuck. You you run the risk of getting overexcited about the approach without having the right due diligence or whatever else. You get risk assessment, exit plan, that kind you, of thing. You, you know, you have a couple successes, and then you think that that will play out in other cases. And I, you know, I think if, for example, if I were to tot up all of the spinoffs I've invested, I think on the whole I would come out ahead. I don't know about as compared to the benchmark or whatever else, but I think I've had more winners than losers, but the losers stay with me quite a bit. Yeah. It's just interesting to think through that. And I guess that's where with merger securities to me is just another version of the spinoff story in, in, in how it works. And so, yeah, I think that's sort of what I take away from chapter four. What about you? I, there's a video floating around the internet somewhere of, Greenblatt teaching a valuation or security analysis course at Columbia Business School, where I think he has a pretty close relationship with them. He's at the chalkboard and he's, I don't know if it's, it may actually be Paramount Viacom he's talking about. Anyway, he's looking at one of these merger securities cases and he starts breaking down the securities and adding up their values on the chalkboard. And it's like brutal to try and sit through and listen to it because it's so boring. It's incredibly dull. And I think that's a point in favor of the strategy, but I think it's also a risk factor. It's complex. It's hard to value the securities. That's partly where the opportunity is. And it's dull. Valuing CVRs and valuing convertible debentures is not easy and it takes a lot of patience and diligence and discipline and it's easy to be wrong. I think the other thing that people should watch out for, we've had a couple CVR driven ideas on Seeking Alpha and I think there are risks associated with these kind of derivative securities that, you know, the the counterparty has to pay pay them off for them to realize their value. And if you're a small player, do you have the wherewithal to defend your rights if something goes wrong? That's a, that's a concern. I feel like this is sort of big boy territory in some cases, and I'd be concerned about that. I don't think the strategy is invalid or bad. I, I think it's hard, harder to pursue. And one of the virtues of, of spinoffs, chapter three, 
is it's like that's hard too, but it's sort of approachable in a way that I'm not as comfortable with merger merger securities, and I don't love merger arm. That's where I land. Okay, so let's we we've run along here, so let's let's hit wrap it up with our favorite quotes and our favorite jokes. Yeah, uh, what do you got for? What's your favorite joke from these two chapters? Uh, the joke is the story, the old story of the peasant who is brought before the king and sentenced to death. We don't know why the peasant is sentenced to death, but it's a king. He gets to Touches save the lot of the peasant. I want to know what happened. <laughs> what happened, peasant? Anyway, we don't know what happened to the peasant. He probably milked the king's cow or something. Uh, the peasant says to the king, please, please, your majesty, spare my life. If you let me live just one year, I will teach the royal horse to talk. And the king, open-minded guy, says, sure. If you teach my horse to talk in one year, I will set you free. It's good. Good job by the king. Give the guy a chance. As the peasants leaving, the guard says, why on earth did you tell the king that you could make a horse talk? When the year is up, you will surely be beheaded. And the peasant says, look, guard, a year is a mighty long time. Maybe the king will change his mind. Maybe the horse will die. Maybe I'll die. Or who knows? If you give him a year, maybe the horse will talk. And I don't know if that's a funny joke, but I just like that it's in there. It's uh, it's not funny, I think. But uh, it does give this, it has a moral. It's a fable. Which is, and the moral of the fable is if you're looking at derivative securities with a certain expiration date, a lot can happen to the upside and a lot can happen to the downside uh, when you're holding those securities. So it's a good way of thinking about risk, I think. And, uh, you know, also if you're ever brought before a king and sentenced to death, you might as well try and make an animal talk as a kind of way of thinking. It's a contingent. It's a, it's a call option, basically. You're selling the king a call option on yourself. If you can make, if this contingency occurs, then there's a benefit to the king. And that's why the king went for it, because it's a, the optionality, I think. Live that's to mine. fight another day. Live to fight another day. Yeah. How about you, Daniel? What was your joke? The I liked it when discussing one of the merger arbs that, he, that gave him art, heartburn. Greenblatt says, Remember the kid they used to stick out in right field? You know, the one who would always circle under the ball yelling, I got it. I got it. Oops. I ain't got it. Well, by the end of this next deal, I was that kid. Let me tell you, it ain't no fun. I like the, the try to slip into sort of the street talk of New York in the, you know, Greenblatt probably grew up in the sixties or seventies. I like the use of ain't. I like the, the the idea of sticking the bad kid in right field, which is what you did. I remember the I revelation. Love that kid. Yeah, <laughs> I remember the revelation that wait, you know, in the pros in the majors, right fielders are actually good fielders because you have to have a good arm. Uh, left field is actually crappy. But as a kid, you're just basing on where they hit it the least, and They'll never hit it there. Yeah, lefties are less frequent than righties, et cetera. So yeah, I just like that, and also the artifact because I, you know. Kids don't play baseball as much anymore. It's not nowadays. If you wrote that, it would be, I think, soccer related. If I had to soccer. guess, left you, back, left, you, left back, 
<laughs> the kid you hide in goalie. Like newsies, like Greenblatt and like a little cap. And they're playing like stickball or something, with, like, <laughs> exactly. like old beer bottles as the bat. And like, a, a they've all got smudged ball, uniforms. Ball they're all smudged. Yeah. They're wearing like knickers. Their know? mom is about to yell at them to come in for dinner. From the, from the tenement window, there's like laundry going across. They're playing against the stoop. <laughs> so yeah it's just it's sort of get, Greenblatt is a it's nice it like just takes you to a world long ago not that we love you Joel we hope we can have you on the podcast he's, just, he's got this great persona of being just a sort of weird corny backslapper type of guy you know what I mean it just go out there you guys there's there's YouTube videos of Greenblatt you'll see him he's like very He's self-effacing in a way that's sort of unusual, I think, for a lot of these sort of big-time investment figures. And it's both endearing and a little, I don't know, it's mostly endearing, I would say. But it's very daddish. He's just a very daddish guy, I feel like. And it's nice. Bygone era, self-effacement, corny jokes. It makes for great reading. I think that's one of the reasons this book has been so successful. So... The key quote for me from these two chapters, I think I alluded to it earlier, but he's talking about merger securities and merger deals. And he says, just remember to read about them, only invest in the ones that are attractive and that you understand. And I think that's really, that's his philosophy is essentially attractive and that you understand. I think it comes out of, you know, he's coming out of the Ben Graham school as far as security analysis, but then just remember to read about them and what he's referring to merger deals, but it's essentially the Lutest point. This idea of be in the right place, look in the right area, and then look for, you know, swing of the pitches that you can see that you can hit. And don't, you don't, if you don't like it, you don't have to reach for it. And I think that's really hard. It's really hard for us to sit on our hands, to sit in cash or the equivalent. But, and we, so we get so excited when there is a spinoff that looks understandable and attractive and then we jump in. Uh, but I think that's what it's about is they got to be attractive. You've got to understand them and you got to be looking in the right place. So that's my key quote from these chapters. What about Great. you? I'm stuck on the test reference. I notice here that in popular culture, it's not, I don't think you can be a stock market genius is on the Wikipedia page. So yeah, I, I saw that. Get out there and, and give Greenblatt, throw him a bone there. Uh, don't ask dumb questions at Lutas is actually a good line. So that's, that's not an investing quote, but that's my money quote. It's, it's funny. It seems like something that you would, you'd hear in a, in a movie and it, and would stick with you. Sticking with me now, I'm going to start saying it to Daniel all the time. So <laughs> you can look forward to that. Thanks, Joel. Look forward to that. Yeah. All right, let's wrap it there. So that's chapters three and four, the heart of You Can Be a Stock Market Genius. Join us next time for chapters five and six, which are still good. <laughs> chapters yeah. five and six, still good. Still good. Lager and we, Daniel. Let's make next time we're in New York, let's go there. All right. The last bastion of Alsatian onion tarts. Oh, man. I could really go for a good tart flambe. I could go for some Grinwee right now. <laughs> well, that's that's your prerogative. Like It is. Undervalued. Hidden asset. All right. Let's, uh, let's wrap. All right. Thanks, Mike. 
All right, take care, Daniel. Bye. Take it easy. Bye. Thank you for listening to Behind the Idea. I hope you enjoyed it. We have two parts left on our Greenblatt Marathon, so stay tuned for that. If you have any feedback about this series or the podcast in general, email us at btipod at seekingalpha.com. As Mike said, a review or rating on Apple Podcasts would be most welcome. As discussed on the podcast, I am long Google. Mike has no positions in any stocks discussed. This has been a Seeking Alpha production. Thank you for listening, and see you next week on Behind the Ideas.